Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Jonah, the prophecy of Jonah. If you don't know where that is, there's a table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. Let me just tell you. Um, it's in the middle of the prophets, the minor prophets that are at the, Old Test- uh, the end of the Old Testament. Jonah chapter 1 is what we'll look at this morning. Um, and if you want, there are a few um, children's Bibles, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, on the back table right there, and the story of Jonah is there on page 161. So pick one of those up if you uh, like to look at pictures. So, um, And there's also a little picture for kids to color that go along with chapter one. So anyway, here we go. <clears throat> the Old Testament, that's what we're in now, the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is about Jesus, believe it or not. We've been talking about that a little bit over the last uh, few weeks as we finished up our series on Luke's gospel on the life of Jesus Christ, where Luke um, records Jesus having taught his disciples a few times, a few different times, um, about the fact that uh, Moses and the prophets, or Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, all the scriptures um, are about him, about his death and his resurrection, about our need for him. So, um, one of the things that he said there that we looked at a couple weeks ago Uh, Luke 24, he was um, gently, mildly rebuking his disciples who didn't understand uh, everything about him. And so he said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And so um, he's referring to the prophets there. That's what we're looking at now. Jonah is a prophet. Uh, Peter talks about the prophets in particular in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. He says that concerning this salvation, the Christian faith, the gospel, the salvation that we have through Christ, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So um, there's a little book that I'm uh, happy to recommend to you by uh, Brian Estelle. He's a professor, I think, at uh, Westminster Seminary in California. He actually helped Nathan Lewis plant Evergreen. I don't know if any of you were there at the very beginning, but Brian Estelle uh, helped Nathan Lewis plant Evergreen in Beaverton. But he wrote a book on Jonah. It's about the gospel in Jonah, and it's called, this, uh, it's called Salvation Through Judgment and Mercy. And this is what he says at the beginning. Actually, it's a foreword uh, by some other guys, but um, it's, this is what shows up in his book. The Old Testament audience was left hanging. The plot was laid out, but the climax was delayed. The unfinished story begged an ending. In Christ, God has provided the climax to the Old Testament story. So just a little bit of uh, you know reasoning and thought behind uh, the patterns that we're going to see as we look at one of these Old Testament books where Jesus is not mentioned by name. Maybe there's not even a a specific prediction about him uh, in words that we would expect to see, but um, but the the Old Testament lays out a story, and Jesus is the answer. He's the climax. He's the 
the end of the story for us. And that's what uh, the whole Old Testament says, but especially the prophets. And Jonah was one of these prophets who apparently, as Peter said, wrestled with God and discovered that his life, his ministry, his experience with God, uh, his proclamation was meant not just for his own sake, but it was meant for you. It was meant to help you um, when you heard about the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul refers to this um, also at the end of the book of Romans. In chapter 15, verse 4, he says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. He's referring to the Old Testament. Whatever was written in the former days was written for you. And the prophets, then, are the last section in that Old Testament. What we have is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. Uh, The prophets are the last section. It starts with the major prophets. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Jeremiah's other book, Lamentations, and Ezekiel and Daniel. Those are the major prophets, uh, maybe just primarily for their length, um, also for their influence, maybe. Then you've got the 12 minor prophets, starting with Hosea, and Jonah's right in the middle of those. Um, And... uh, his prophecy is different from all the others. It's different from any other prophecy that we have in that section. His pro- it's very different. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've uh, gone through the prophets, if you have done that. The other prophets write um, direct addresses. These are like sermons, and they sometimes they were sermons that uh, were recorded by these prophets. They're, they're, sermon, they're talking to you while Jonah is the story. Jonah is a story of his experience of God. There's no commands. There's no warnings. There's no direct address in Jonah. It's a story of his experience with God, and it's it's an unusual story. Not only is it unusual among the prophets, but it's an unusual story. It's unusual enough that we have to ask, why was it written? Uh, Why was it included with these other prophetic writings? How are we supposed to be encouraged by Jonah? How are we supposed to be encouraged by Jonah in light of the gospel now that we know it? Um, And maybe the most salient point, what's the deal with the fish? (laughs) What's up with the fish? Everybody knows the story of Jonah because it's about this fish. You see this. What is that? (laughs) Uh, Jesus himself... In his public ministry, he referred to something called the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. He drew some connections between himself and the book of Jonah, between the book of Jonah and the gospel, the good news about him and his ministry. What's that connection? What's the sign of Jonah? What's he talking about? Uh, We read about it in our uh, uh, gospel reading this morning. What is the sign of Jonah? There's a lot of questions. and We've got a few weeks to look at the book. Hopefully, we'll answer these questions in helpful ways through the series, but I think maybe even this morning. Uh, So, uh, we'll look at chapter 1 this morning, but it'll also be sort of an overview of the whole thing. So, let's let's pray for God's help, and then we'll read Jonah 1. Father, we need your help. We really do need your help to consider your word rightly. We can read words that are printed uh, in front of us. We can hear them clearly enough. But to understand what they mean and understand their reference uh, to Jesus Christ, these things have baffled us for thousands of years. Uh, We always seem to get it wrong. And when um, 
when Jesus came teaching us how to read the scriptures rightly, we, uh, we still get it wrong or else we just flat out reject it. So we pray that you would overcome the obstacles in our hearts and in our minds, that we would be able to understand your word and not only uh, know what it says, but believe it and be changed by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah 1. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So if you've read uh, the whole book of Jonah, I'm guessing you probably like it. Um, you, you probably like it. Maybe you're confused what it's supposed to be about. Maybe you don't understand it uh, fully, or maybe you don't even understand why you like it. But um, it, it is something that generally people like. It's, it's actually a masterpiece. It's actually a classic. Uh, it's so well-crafted, it's almost, it almost comes across like one of Jesus' parables, uh, where the events are orchestrated to, to get these points across so well. Um, but it really is actually historical, right? Um, but the book of Jonah is brilliant, especially for being written around 760 B.C., you know. 
almost 800 years before Jesus. That's, um, you don't get this kind of literature much from that era. Uh, Tim Keller says, uh, he's preached a bunch of sermons on Jonah. He, he, he likens the book of Jonah to the movie The Sixth Sense. If you've seen that movie, uh, I won't spoil the details for you, but when you get to the end of the movie, The Sixth Sense, um, kind of changes everything that you saw before, right? You, you go through the movie, you watch it once, and you think you understand it, and then you get to the end and you're like, whoa, I didn't understand that at all, and I've got to go back and watch that again now that I know what I know about the ending, right? Um, you get to the end and it changes the way that you understand the whole thing, especially the beginning, and so you need to know what comes later. If you're going to understand chapter one, if you're going to understand the whole book of Jonah, you need to know what comes later. And in order to understand what comes later, to understand the end of it, you need to know some historical context and some biblical context. So you back up a little bit and you um, think about Israel. Israel in these days, you know, David had the kingdom. He passed it to his son Solomon. It was one united kingdom. And then because of Solomon's sins, his uh, sons ended up dividing the kingdom. And ten tribes went to the north and two tribes stuck with the south in Judah. The, the northern tribes stuck with the name Israel, and, um, and Assyria is this great conquering kind of a juggernaut of a nation right next to them to the east. Assyria came in before this happened, before Jonah's uh, life. Um, they came in and they forced Israel to pay tribute to them. They came in and they didn't, they didn't utterly wipe them out, but uh, they forced Israel to pay tribute to them. And actually during this time when Jonah lived and ministered and when this happened, um, Assyria was kind of not as strong as they used to be, temporarily at least. They kind of had pulled back and they were occupied with other things, kind of regathering their strength. Um, and so Israel, where Jonah lives, uh, Israel, God's people in the north there, they actually uh, experienced some prosperity during this time. They, they were politically prosperous. They had evil kings, uh, but God had spared them from destruction, and he actually blessed them. He gave them some prosperity, uh, but they were corrupt. And we get that image from several of the, the other prophets, especially Amos. Amos wrote about their corruption because Israel at this time, they basically took their prosperity and they said, see, God loves us. See, we really are better than everybody else. This is a sign of God's favor that we're prosperous. And that is not, that is not nearly always the case, Right? That is not a necessary inference from your prosperity, that God loves you and blesses you and he's favored you, right? That's not necessarily a sign of that. Uh, in fact, it was largely due to their oppression of, of people, their injustices that they had committed. Israel had uh, gotten their wealth through unjust means, they, they, uh, and they loved their wealth. They were affluent, and they were idolaters. They had really turned away from God in a lot of ways. And so they were fooling themselves. They were fooling themselves into thinking that God uh, was favoring them through this time. They were prosperous, but they were fooling themselves into thinking that that meant they were favored by God. And that's pretty important. They were self-deceptive because of their self-righteousness. It's important for us to think about in terms of the context of Jonah, in terms of our own lives. They were self-deceptive because of their self-righteousness. But God was telling his people at the time, through the prophets, he was telling them loudly and clearly that they were judged and found wanting. And that Assyria was going to grow strong again, and they were going to come, 
They're going to come wipe them out for their unfaithfulness, for their sin. Um, And when they did that, we know Israel would never be the same. Those northern tribes, they never got themselves back together. They, uh, in Jesus' day, people knew Samaria as that's the location, that's the geographical location where all this took place. Samaria, those are the bad guys because that's where Assyrians and uh, Israelites intermingled and they lost it all. They lost their religion, they lost their identity, they lost it all, right? Never to regain it. Um, and so it was bad news <laughs> that was being preached uh, to Israel during this time. Bad news about Assyria, that's for sure. And Nineveh, Nineveh, which is where Jonah is sent, that great city, go speak against it because their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was not the capital city, but it was the largest city in Assyria, and it's present day, it's in uh, Iraq, it's Mosul. I don't know how to pronounce that, Mosul. Um, But that's where Nineveh is. And these people, uh, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, you want to talk about bad people, they really were some bad people. Uh, I'll spare you gory details, but conquering and enslaving nations was not pretty business in those days. I don't know if it ever is, but especially in those days. And the Assyrians were well known for their atrocities. Um, no one ever loved brutal power and violence more than the Assyrians loved it. Uh, and they would have laughed at the term human rights violations. They would have laughed at that. Um, Nineveh was deep in the heart of this fearful empire. It was 600 miles. Nineveh was 600 miles away from where Jonah was, which was a pretty long walk in those days. So you can imagine why Jonah would be hesitant to go there. It's a, it's a very unusual assignment for one of Israel's prophets. Usually they're told to proclaim a message directly to their own people in their own land, kind of where they're a little bit more safe. Um, but he's, he's being sent to the worst heathens that the world has ever known. And um, it's not very safe. They're Israel's enemies. This is like, I'm going to go and kick the hornet's nest by telling you what Israel's God says to you, and it's bad news. Um, So there are normal, acceptable reasons that we would imagine that Jonah's going to hesitate to go and declare this message, but he doesn't just hesitate, right? He refuses. He, uh, He flees in the opposite direction, and in fact, the book emphasizes that he's, he's trying to get away not just from the assignment, not just from the assignment, the mission. He's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord, it says twice, right, uh, in the first couple of verses. He's, he's a fugitive from God, from Yahweh, the one true God. He's trying to run. Prophets are usually pretty quick to obey God. This is what we see in the scriptures, the prophets... God says, do this, and they're like, that sounds crazy, but I guess I'll do it. Um, But Jonah's on the run, and what you discover, really shockingly, (laughs) you don't expect it the first time you read through it. What what you discover at the end of the book of Jonah is that he's running away because, because he knows God will forgive the Ninevites. We don't have a hint of that here, but he knows that God will forgive because God's a gracious and merciful God. And that's why he's running away from God. Not just his mission, but from God. Um, In chapter 1, we see him on the run. In chapter 2, he's in the fish. In chapter 3, he's in Nineveh, and he preaches. And they all repent. And God 
relents from the disaster that he was going to bring upon them. And in chapter 4, he is sulking, he is mad at God for having mercy on these people. Um, for forgiving his enemies. And it says, I'll read a little bit of chapter 4, a couple verses at the beginning there. It says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, isn't this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he knew that God was gracious, and that drove him crazy with anger. It drove him crazy with anger. Even though he was told to go to Nineveh with a message of judgment, With a message of doom, he knew that because God is the God that he is, I mean, he knows who this God is. He has the books of Moses. He he knows who God has revealed himself to be. That even a message of doom would result in their mercy. Even a message of judgment would result in mercy toward Nineveh, and that that was unbearable, and he would rather die. He'd rather have nothing to do, not just with the mission, with God. He would rather have nothing to do with God whatsoever than to deal with this God of grace and mercy. (sighs) In this book, Jonah represents God's people. Jonah represents Israel. Jonah represents the church, Christians, insiders, insiders. And Nineveh represents the nations, the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the outsiders. And the book exposes the fact that insiders believe that um, they deserve to be insiders. We're insiders because of who we are. And we despise outsiders. We despise them becoming insiders merely by God's grace without having to become just like us, without having to be as good as we think we are, right? We deserve this favor from God because look at us. Look at how good we are. And we hate not only the outsiders, we hate not only being told to go and preach the gospel to them, but we hate God. We hate his grace toward those undeserving outsiders because it strips away everything that we've built our lives on, built our identities on. It strips away our self-righteousness. Yeah, we hate grace. We hate God for his grace. His grace toward them. It implies that we need his grace and we can't stand that. I'm not going to stand for that. We're doing just fine on our own. Thank you very much. His grace implicitly condemns us doesn't it? That's what grace, when you need mercy, it implicitly condemns you. You need mercy. And it attacks our self-righteousness. And we, we think that we will be diminished if we have to approach God on these terms, on his terms. This gracious God. That's going to diminish me. 
And we can't stand that. So much that we would rather run away from God than be confronted with his grace, with who he actually is in his grace. And that's the insane thing. That's the folly of this anger at, at God's grace. Jonah wants to distinguish himself from the pagans. I'm not like them. I'm righteous and holy and religious and all that. I, I'm not like the pagans. He wants to distinguish himself from them as a holy man, and yet he goes to pagan Joppa. He pays the pagans to board a pagan ship to go to pagan Tarshish away from God. God loves me because of who I am. He'd rather run away from God than believe otherwise. Right? He flees from the presence of the Lord. He can't stand being made equal to pagans by God's, God's grace. He prefers to think that he has a claim on God's presence in and of himself. In and of himself. Uh, where is the presence of the Lord? Uh, in the Old Testament, you know, we, in a sense, it's everywhere. And there's psalms that say, you can't get away from him. You can't run far enough. You can't hide well enough to get away from the presence of the Lord. He's everywhere. But in a special sense, the presence of the Lord is in his temple. It's among his people. It's, it's his church, right? That's, uh, but in the Old Testament, his temple, where the presence of the Lord dwelt. And so Jonah had to get away from all of this, all of this. Because he was angry at God's grace. You're telling me that apart from your grace, I would be a pagan like them, then I would rather be a pagan like them than have to deal with your grace. Does that make any sense? I mean, that's, that self-righteous anger isn't holy. It's pagan. Right? And it's a paradox. And he can't live with it. And it drives him insane. It drives him insane. And he, but God, in his mercy, does not leave him alone. It's almost humorous. There's these points that you know, you look throughout the book of Jonah, levity, divine levity, it's, it's humorous. God sent a storm, you know. He threw a storm on the sea. Uh, God, in his mercy, doesn't leave Jonah alone. He, he sends a storm not just to redirect Jonah, not just to kind of push him back in the direction that he's supposed to be going, um, but uh, to show us that he's able to orchestrate all things for his mercy. He's coming after Jonah in his mercy. And he can do whatever he wants to make that happen. He uses even the terrible, chaotic, destructive storm at sea, which everyone knows, everyone knows is not a sign of mercy. This is a sign of judgment, right? Right? It's a, it's a bad enough storm that uh, even the experienced sailors are terrified. These are guys, they're not going to be put off by a little rough weather. Um, but they're terrified. They all get really desperate. They're crying out to their pagan gods, whichever one they think will help. And they start throwing their precious cargo overboard. This is their livelihood, the reason why they're out there, and it's going to feed their families and stuff. They throw it over. We're going to die. We're in big trouble. Um, and Jonah is down in the hold, sleeping, fast asleep. This is not normal, right? I mean, you picture this scene... Um, this is him trying to tune out the world because he can't handle the insanity of his self-righteousness. He can't handle it. He can't handle himself. He can't handle God. He can't. It's, it's insanity what he's doing. And if he's awake, he can't help but think of it, and it's going to crush him. Right? 
And so he's on the run from God. He knows you can't run from God. You can't hide from God. He's running anyway, um, and he just has to tune it out. He just has to distract himself, just check out. Right? Um, and we do this when we constantly distract ourselves from thinking about God. Maybe you know what this is like. I, you should know what it's like, even if you're a religious person, even if you're a Christian. You should know what it means when you uh, distract yourself from contemplating God, who he is, even in his mercy. Because Jonah is a Christian, right? He's a religious person. He's one of God's people. And so you're not exempt from this. You do this too. If, if, uh, if you think at all about God, you've got you to stop that. Right? Um, if you think at all about your self-righteousness, you've got to stop that. You can't handle it. It's, uh, it's insanity and it's just crushing. We absolutely cannot sit still and know that he is God. Right? We cannot contemplate all the ramifications of our chosen existence apart from him. Uh, we cannot bear the thought that we're utterly at his mercy. You'll either go insane or you'll have to throw yourself on his mercy. Right? Utterly. You'll either go insane or you'll have to throw yourself solely on his mercy and Jonah won't do that, so he's checked out. He's asleep. Um, sleeping at an impossible time. And the captain comes down and rebukes him. The Gentile rebukes him. The pagan rebukes him. The outsider rebukes him. The pagan captain is preaching the message that Jonah is supposed to preach, right? The pagan is preaching what the Christian is supposed to preach. He says, your faith isn't leading you to pursue the common good here, is it? What are you doing? Get up and pray. Help us. We're all praying here. We don't know what we're doing. Maybe you do. You're not using that faith to help us. Um, you better know what this is like. You better know this is how God works. The, the pagan condemning the insider. You better know that. He judges his people by those who are not his people. He, he judges us by those who are not his people. And it ends up driving everyone to his mercy. Do you know any believers who are better people than you? You should. Uh, did I say believers? Do you know any unbelievers? Do you know any outsiders, people who are not in the church? Do you know any unbelievers, atheists and pagans, who are better people than you? You should. They're all over the place. Right. Are you ever stung by an unbeliever's criticism of the church? They have some good criticisms to make. You should be stung by it. That's how God works. Because it's not about your behavior, really. And, and that's how God works. It's not to make you try harder to be better than all of them. That's not the point. It's to get you to know it's not about you being a good person. It's about God's mercy. That's why he can use pagans to condemn us. It's not about... It's about God's mercy. God uses the pagans to call Jonah to confess his sins. That's what chapter 1 is. Confess your sins, Jonah. To recognize his need for absolute mercy, for absolute grace. And the pagans are right to condemn him. They are right. And uh, the takeaway for Jonah should be, I'm certainly no better than they are. I deserve condemnation. I do need God's grace as much as they do. Uh, and it's hard to tell whether this is sinking in at all for him. 
throughout the whole book, it's hard to tell whether this is really sinking in. Um, he seems pretty reluctant to admit this through the whole book, but I think we can take, take heart knowing that it was probably him who wrote the book, right? Um, he saw what was happening here, and he saw that it was good for us to see it too. Um, he probably came to grips with what God was doing, probably wrote all of this down largely as a confession of his sin and as a testimony to God's grace for our sake. And he sort of seems uh, to be confessing here, gritting his teeth when he implicates himself. He's the reason for God sending the storm. I know it's because of me that the storm has been sent on you. And they say, what have you done? This is condemning still. What have you done? Now what are we supposed to do? <clears throat> and it, so it heaps more guilt on his head. He's still obviously torn between some kind of faith and, and despair, you know, like a depressing suicidal kind of despair. Um, so he says, uh, just throw me overboard. You'll be saved. Um, you know, he, he should have done it himself. He should have just jumped in the sea. Um, but he's a coward, so he's going to make them murder him, basically. Right? Um, but they didn't want to, because these pagans were better than him. So, they tried in vain to row back to land, and God just keeps amping up the storm, becoming more and more tempestuous, thwarting them, you know. Um, they tried to save his life, but they couldn't. And so as a last resort, they begged God's forgiveness, and they threw him into the sea. And it worked, and God calmed the storm, uh, and the pagans worshipped him. They responded to what they had seen to this deliverance. They responded some kind of faith, you know. Uh, and God mercifully used the judgment of the insider, the judgment of Jonah, his doom. God mercifully used that to bring these outsiders to him, to save them and to bring them to him. It's a weird kind of evangelism, isn't it? It's, I think Jonah is, is a manual for our evangelism in some ways. It's a weird kind of evangelism to proclaim that we, the insiders, are no better than the outsiders, that we are guilty and deserving of judgment, and that drives people to seek God's grace, and it drives people to praise God for his grace when we do that. And it's a weird kind of salvation, isn't it, that God in his mercy condemns his prophet, his prophet who represents the people, and... Um, and then more people are brought in to receive God's mercy. I think that's the sign of Jonah that Jesus was talking about. It's mercy to outsiders through the judgment of insiders um, to the salvation of all of them. Mercy to outsiders through the judgment of insiders, maybe an insider, <clears throat> to the salvation of all. And this book is about God's mercy. It's a plea for repentance. Turn around and pursue the presence of the Lord, right? It's an intervention. That's never fun. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of an intervention. Even the, the not receiving end of an intervention is never fun, right? It's suffering. But God works all things together for our good. That's the kind of God that he is, right? It's good, it's restoration. God's coming after those who are slow to repent. 
who refuse to believe that they need to repent, that they need grace. I don't want to believe that. He's coming after you. And even his warnings, even his judgments, even doom lead to mercy. The fish was, was uh, <clears throat> the, it was Jonah's doom. You know, the fish was, imagine being cast into the angry sea or a tempest like this during God's, it's, it's like a miraculous level storm, right? Being swallowed alive by a whale. That's death. You're dead. Think of the terror of that. I mean, that's, you're dead. That's your doom. But God saves his people through death, through the death of the prophet, through the death of the one who represents his people. Self-righteous people, like the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, people who hated the implications of God's grace so much that they refused to celebrate when salvation was coming to the outsiders. They refuse to celebrate it. They hate God's grace. Self-righteous people like them, like Jonah, like us, um, they hear Jesus say, you're getting the sign of Jonah. You're getting the sign of Jonah. That is to say, what Jonah represented was that the insiders deserve death. All of them. Insiders deserve death, but they would be saved from what they deserved through a representative suffering what they deserved. Someone would taste doom on behalf of God's people, the doom they deserve. And it would be like Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's what that would be like. And when that someone tasted that doom for God's people, it would mean the mercy of God in their salvation to the ends of the earth. Jesus is the one who is greater than Jonah. That's what he said. I'm the, the one greater than Jonah. He's here. Right. Jonah was asleep in the storm because he couldn't stand God's sovereign grace. And you see the picture. It's, it's the same picture when Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and the storm hits and he's asleep, right? Um, Jesus was asleep because he absolutely trusted God's grace, his father's power and love. Jonah was insane about the grace. Jesus was at peace about his father's love. Jonah deserved to taste his own doom. Jesus didn't deserve it. Jonah represented God's people as a symbol. Jesus represented God's people as a substitute, a real substitute. Jonah got all gross inside a whale stomach. Jesus was tortured and crucified and dead and buried. Jonah was insanely reluctant every step of the way. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. He was happy to do it. Jonah hated the outsiders and wanted to distance himself from them, but paradoxically became just like them when he did that. Uh, Jesus loved the outsiders. He moved toward them. And even though he really was unlike sinners, even though he really was unlike, he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He became like us. He became our sin. 
Jonah despised God's mercy. Jesus is God's mercy. He is God's mercy. Jesus is the ultimate insider who suffered judgment for outsiders for our salvation. So the story of Jonah leaves you hanging for God's mercy. (laughs) You know it must be there. It's got to be there like this. You get a taste of it here with Jonah. You're expecting something more. It leaves you hanging for God's mercy. Jesus is the full provision of that mercy. If the story of Jonah is a call to repentance from our self-righteousness, how much more is the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ a call for us to repent, to turn away from our sin and our self-righteousness and run to God because of his mercy. Look at Jonah and look at Jesus. You cannot think for a moment that you do not need God's grace. You can't think that. He's not letting you think that. He doesn't allow you to think that you are in because you're better than them because you're a certain color or of a certain gender or because you're reformed or something. We want to distinguish ourselves from others, but God's mercy highlights our similarities, our common need for grace. You cannot think of Jesus and think you don't need that grace. You can't can't look at him without either wanting to kill him or trying desperately to ignore him or throwing yourself on him for his mercy. But God is a God who will track you down. He will track you down if you're running from him. He will bring you back to Jesus to confess your sin and to confess your need for mercy. And the good news is, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, that God has shown himself truly to be a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, you've got to come to him on his terms. There's no other way. You've got to come to him on his terms He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace for sinners. And you're one of those. But it means that he's a God of mercy and grace for sinners. <laughs> right? Isn't that worth coming to him as a sinner in need? Isn't that worth it? So stop running. Right? Stop running. Turn around. Let him be gracious to you. We're all in the same boat here. We've all come here for this same reason. We've all been tracked down by him in the same way. So enter the presence of the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ with us. We'll do that together. All right? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we do hate being told that we're sinners, um, but it is rather the sin inside of us that hates that. And we want to be done with that. Uh, We want to confess it. We want to turn away from it. We want to turn to you because we know who you are. You have shown us clearly who you are through the person and work, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've shown yourself to be someone we can trust. And um, so we give up all of our self-righteousness. We we throw it away from us. Um, We're thankful that Jesus Christ has paid for all of our sins with his precious blood and that we can approach you for eternal life with you, for joy and peace forever in the righteousness and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. We're thankful for this gospel, and we pray that your grace, even in the conviction of our sins, that your grace would change us more and more into the likeness of Jesus, 
um, the likeness of this one who laid his life down for others so that they too also could uh, receive and hear and uh, be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this uh, not just for our own sakes, for our own relationship with you, but for the sake of the whole world that um, is right in your targets because you are the great hunter, uh, the one who tracks all of us down in your mercy. We're glad that's who you are and that you've even called us to be a part of your mission in this world. We pray that you would help us uh, fix, fix our eyes on your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.